I want to invite you to come back to the psalm which we read together in our scripture reading this morning. And of course, that was Psalm 103. Ask the Lord to help us glean wonderful words of life from Psalm 103. I'm blessed. I've made some dear friends since living here in beautiful southwest Florida. One of those friends of mine just keeps breaking my heart. He has some very great troubles of the heart and mind. His sins have been many. His sins have been grievous and hurtful to those who are the dearest on earth to him. Almost all of his pains are self-inflicted. And I can tell you, as much love as the Lord has put in me for my friend, I have at times been very angry with him. I have wept over him and with him. As I've shared time and again the message of God's grace in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even at this present moment, I still long to see him come to God's truth and be set free by it. Some well-meaning folks close to me would say, Pastor, you've done all that you could do. Let him go. This morning, my friend sits alone in prison. It's not the first time. And this very week, he will miss another birthday celebration with his sweet children and a very persevering wife. I hadn't heard much from my friend for a while, but on Friday afternoon, I received this letter from him, written with a prison-issued number two pencil and the yellow-lined paper. I should not, and I will not, of course, read the whole letter to you, but I can tell you how the letter begins. After the greeting, hi, pastor, come the first two words, and they are the most important words any of us could ever say about ourselves. They are the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be writing you from jail again. And I know that I've let you down. Your words have helped to bring some peace to my troubled mind in here and outside. And I wanted to thank you. Your words helped to inspire some hope of change in me. I thought I was doing good for a long time and I don't understand what has happened to me. Even though this is not the plan I had for my life, I have to believe that it's 
not my plan at all. But for some reason, I cannot understand. Perhaps it is God's plan. I have to bear this, but I sure wish my family didn't have to suffer because of me. I want to be the person I know that God can make me to be. I want to be a friend, a father, and a husband to be loved and respected instead of what I am now. The letter goes on. I still have a great deal of hope for my friend. Not so much because I think he is able to change on his own. I have real hope for my friend, frankly, because he is really, really pitiful. But I happen to be praying on his behalf to a God of pity for the pitiful. In fact, I have a reason to believe my friend has been on a Godward journey of late. For out of the depths and from a pit of despair, in this letter he enclosed another page. And here's what he said concerning it. I wrote this poem, and I want to share it with you. And I was struck by the title, two words that he gave to his own creative heart expression. Two words, his plan. Listen to what he writes. Pray for my friend up in the Sarasota jail who seems to be on a journey that I trust is leading in the right direction. Here's what he writes, his plan. Is this a circumstance of fate? Do I fill myself with sorrow and hate or lay down my head and begin to cry, curling up in a ball and wanting to die? To which he feels he gets an answer and speaks what he believes God may be speaking in his heart. Listen. No, my son. Open your eyes, rise, and stand. Your life is in the palm of my hand. The world is beautiful. The universe grand. Before your birth, I had your plan. You're my child, listen to me and rejoice. Hear the power in my voice. Walk with me and do not fear. You're in my care. I'm always near. Have hope and faith. My work's not done. I'll give you the strength to carry on. So praise me through the good times and bad And thank me when you're happy or sad. 
You can't comprehend, God says, the depths of my mind, but I'll give you the answers in due time. So when you're feeling confused, alone, or blue, know that I'm there, I'll never leave, and then in great big capital letters, God ends his talk to this man's soul with the words simply, I love you. Wow. The grace of God is at work. And this morning we've read the words of another poet, a divinely inspired one by the name of David, who, if you remember, also had some pretty down times, some seasons in the pit, and some grievously self-inflicted pain, even horrific moral failures. But he also knew that somehow, in spite of himself, there was hope because there is a God of pity to the pitiful. Now in this psalm, verses 13 and 14, uh, will be the two verses among the total of 22 verses that I want you to take home to your hearts this morning. Okay, those two verses, if not the whole chapter. But let's go back to verse 1 here in just a moment, and we're going to walk the sacred path where we encounter a gracious God who, as I think we sometimes need to be reminded, is a God with feelings. I have a sense that we may not think of God too often in that way. Somehow we know ourselves well enough to know that our emotions can play havoc with our lives. So when we think about saying that God is a God of feelings, God is a God of emotion, do we fear that we may attribute to him some weakness that we know cannot possibly be there? But the scriptures will not let us suggest for a moment that God is just all black and white objective truth. He is a God with feelings. Boy, the other day I was up at one of the food chains here. I'll not name which one. And uh, they had installed some new areas in the parking lot where you're supposed to park your cart after you've loaded the groceries into the car. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you take the cart to where it's supposed to be? Or which one of you banged into the side of my car door with your empty cart here? I won't ask for a show of it. Now, they did something very clever up the street at this particular store. They've erected new signs in the new bins where we're supposed to put the carts. And here's what it said, and that startled me. I looked up, read it, and it said, Grocery carts have feelings too. Please return them to their home." And, you know, I have to confess, at first I I went, aw. And then I got in the car and I thought, that is about the stupidest (laughs) thing I have ever seen anywhere. Grocery carts. Beloved, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I have to tell you, grocery carts do not have feelings. But I can tell you that since we are made in the image of God, you and I 
are very emotional beings. That's one of the ways we can know God has feelings. We're made in his image, and he gave us a ton of feelings, a wide variety of emotions. Now, given our fallenness, of course, those emotions may be triggered in us to be both good or evil. Sometime I think we should study the emotional life of our Lord as a subject. Or as one theologian put it when he writes, quote, Christ himself is the model of perfect spirituality. That is, if you want to know what it is to be spiritual, if you want to know what it is to live in a godly way, look at Christ. But this theologian reminds us and says, if you want to know what you're supposed to feel, study the emotions of Christ and of God the Father. For he perfectly embodied each emotional experience of life. I'm continuing to quote this theologian. He says, a survey of the emotional life of Jesus will aid us in learning how to express our emotions. Indeed, if we wish to possess the heart of Christ, to share his mind, will, attitude, and aspirations, we must learn to embrace the full range of godly emotions which he experienced. And having read that this week, I thought, wow, that's a fascinating and would make a fruitful study and a wonderful series of sermons. The emotional life of our Lord. But for now, in our limited time this morning, just take it on the truth of God's word. God has feelings. And among the most wonderful, I think, of his emotions, revealed time and time again in the scriptures is what we've already spoken of. He is a God of pity. And let me tell you, that's good news if you're pitiful. That there is a God of pity to the pitiful. In this one biblical poem alone, David reveals the heart of God in pity that he would be so moved with compassion, which is often the synonym to this older English word pity in the scriptures, that he would be so moved by pity that he would move in our direction. And David says from the outset, beginning there in verse 1, and repeats it again and again, that this is cause for every ounce of our beings To bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But you have to read on to see what inspires such intense desire for worship. And you'll find it is specific things that this God of pity has done that he has moved to accomplish on behalf of us pitiful ones that gives the psalmist such a desire to use every fiber of his being to bless the name of the Lord. Verses 13 and 14 we'll read. Then we'll go back again to verse 1 and we'll follow the context of these two verses which are the main focus. And I want to read, in this case, the older and the much-loved King James Version because, frankly, I like the word pity. 
And most of the newer English translations uh, tend to address that word up a little bit. And they use a word like compassion. But to be true, true, more true to the Hebrew text, the word that is used, even in our day, even after 1611 in the writing of the King James Version, pity is still the best word in this verse. And so I'm going to read it that way. Verses 13 and 14. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. That's wonderful. That's good news for the pitiful. Just this morning, doing additional background devotional reading prior to coming to church, I jotted down one commentator's poem. Seems I'm reading poems this morning. Listen to these words. Listen carefully. They're so full of instruction about that verse that says, He pities us as a father would pity his children. It says this, In him is only good. Would you agree with that? God is good. What are you supposed to say? All the time. Because it's his nature, his character. It's the very essence of God. God is good. In him is the, in him is only good. In in me is only ill. My ill but draws his goodness forth, and me he loveth still. I had to read it a couple times to really get the drops of sweet cordial. I'm going to read it to you again. Think about what this is saying. It so expresses a ton of scripture verses. In him is only good, in me is only ill. My ill but draws his goodness forth. You know what that is? That's pity. That out of his goodness, beholding all that is sick about me in my fallenness and in my sinfulness, his very goodness seems to be drawn out by my illness, by my need. And that particular poet concludes, he sees it all, but he loves me still. Another commentator reminds us that when the phrase, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, concluded this as a linguist looking at the Hebrew. He is, that is, God is at this present moment compassionating us. For the word, the verb to pity there, is in the present ongoing tense. That is, his pity never fails to flow and we never cease to need it. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And he knows us because he made us. He knows what we're made of. And we are 
but dust. Now, in the next 15 minutes or so, which should bring us close to the conclusion of our service, I have some more things to say about this, but I sense that I am indeed standing in the need of prayer, that all of us need this message. Oh, by the way, because whether you know it or not, and whether you don't like having the designation, you're all pitiful. And we all need this God. So let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for not only revealing yourself in words of objective truth, but for also revealing how you feel about us. And how we rejoice to know, as the writer of Hebrews has said, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tested, tried, and tempted as we are, so that we can draw near with confidence to a throne, not of judgment, but a throne of grace, to find that you, in pity of us, give endless mercies and abounding grace in our time of need, which is all the time. Help us now by your Holy Spirit to enter into the joy of our salvation by the words of this scripture this morning for the honor and the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Yes, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. That's reminding us we ought to be a people who count our blessings And count them every day, because you'll never run out of blessings to count. But of all the blessings, look where he begins to list specifically the most wondrous truth of all. God's benefits flowing from his grace, for which every fiber of the being should be willing to bless the name of the Lord at all times. Why? Verse 3. This is the one who pardons some of your sins. Anybody going to confront me? Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. While God does heal physical diseases, I am of the firm conviction that the pardoning of our iniquities... And the healing of all of our diseases has to do not so much with physical maladies, though we thank God for healing power that he sometimes grants according to his will. But diseases here means those effects of the sins and the iniquities which we have committed. You know, someone has often said, you know, God will forgive your sin, but there are still consequences Let me just say that I suppose in some ways there are irreversible consequences to certain terrible sins we commit. But here's a truth that tells us God is in the business. His grace is so far reaching that even some of the consequences, the sickness of mind, the sickness of soul, the sickness of emotion, he's able to bring a healing of even the effects of those iniquities. For what does he do, verse 4? He redeems your life from the pit. And instead of a life in the pit, he's lifted you up and crowns you. Get that. 
This one who was full of iniquities, diseased of soul, he now crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The word compassion there is our word pity. No matter when you get started with the Lord, and it is never too late as long as you have breath. First person I ever baptized in this baptismal pool behind me was 80 years old. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Oh, the body may have a time catching up. But there's nothing says that the soul of a 95-year-old can't soar when reflecting upon such benefits of the Lord. Because, verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. You see, he's a God who looks at it all and he's moved to compassion. Pity is what makes God act in mercy, in grace, in righteousness, in judgment on behalf of his children. Verse 7, you need an example. He made uh, himself known. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. All the history of the Old Testament. Listen to me. All the stupendous History of God's ways with Israel in the New Testament have application to little old me. I should have said little old you and insignificant me. So we think we're insignificant. We're not. How much value is placed upon our heads if God chooses to count and keep the number of hairs there? Oh, not keep them there, I guess, but counts them. Why he is compassionate, gracious. The psalmist can't get away from the theme for which he wants his whole soul and all that is within him to bless the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. It's our sins that abound. You'd think the verse would be the other way around. He's got some loving kindness towards us, but boy, he abounds in anger because our sins abound. No, later in the New Testament, Paul tells us, no, it's the other way around. For even when your sins abound, it's not his anger that abounds, but grace that superabounds. And if you sense that you're under the heavy hand of the Father during a time of chastening, which every faithful son, daughter, and parent knows about, there is the comfort of verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. I mean no irreverence when I say this, but I feel like I want to drive the truth of verse 9 home to some oversensitive hearts here this morning. God does get over it. No matter what you've done, he will get over it. When you come in Jesus' name, the blood speaks louder. And the blood propitiates his wrath and takes it aside. Proof of that is in our experience. The psalmist had the experience of verse 10, so do we. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Folks, what if that were the case? 
What if tomorrow on a Monday morning, that's all you could expect, that God will start your new day dealing with you according to your performance? But it says here, he's not going to deal with us that way. Not according to our sins. And the reward that we get will not be the payment for our sins, which is death. Nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. How great is this pity? How great is this compassionate God? Well, try to measure it, he says. Look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Those who have a familial fear of reverence and respect for the Father who is their Redeemer through the Elder Son, Jesus Christ. For them, his loving kindness cannot be measured any more than you could measure the first, the second, the third heaven, wherever that is. And all that the scientists today are telling us is outer space. What are its dimensions? I thrill to be living in the year of our Lord, 2008. Pick up a, an article of interest in the newspaper that says, uh-oh, we got a new telescope, it's a little more powerful, and guess what? We just discovered another galaxy. Go try to measure it. And if you can, you will have some sense of the dimension of mercy, of grace, of loving kindness, of compassion the nature of God's pity for you, pitiful one. And then our two verses are there. What I wanted you to see is it's a relationship where he's the father and we're the child. I am so thankful that late in life, I was a bachelor confirmed in it for 39 years. And then the best thing in all of those 39 years happened to me. I found someone willing to ask me to marry them. <laughs> no, I found someone willing to say yes, for which she's only had several days here and there of regret, I am sure. But along came two children. And, you know, I was a preacher long before I had children, but I want to tell you something. I believe God made me a better preacher after having children I don't think I can deal with a verse like, as a father pitieth his children, and really comprehend what that is emotionally until I had children. Until I took my children along with their mother to the first day of kindergarten. It was such a traumatic time that the teacher got help for me in releasing their little hands to the classroom. <laughs> and then continued because I had the unique flexibility of being a pastor to find myself often on the playground when it was time to pick up my two. Now there were hundreds of kids. And there were a good number of them for which I had no pity whatsoever. <laughs> In fact, a few of them I would but isn't there something to this familial, this father-like possession of his child? If you've been a parent, you know, for example, how much easier it is to forgive your own kid than it is the neighbor's kid. 
even if your kid has done something more terrible than your neighbor's kid. Well, what is that? That is something by nature that comes with the makeup of what it is to be a father. That it's to his children rather than all the children on the playground for which he is quickly compelled to move in pity. The only difference, and I think it's why the psalmist divides it, he says in some ways, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You see, he understands that all life under the sun and all parenting among the fallen makes all of us members of dysfunctional families. I'm a dysfunctional father. I am the first to admit it. Which is probably why I have two dysfunctional kids. A wife and a mother who prays for all of us in that family constantly. But this is the heavenly father. With apologies to Robert Young, anybody who remembers that name, this is the father who really does know best. This is the father that never blows it. This is the father that never loses his temper. This is the father that has a right word at the right time for every need every day. And this is the birthright of a true child of God. And while our God in heaven observes all the trouble in all the world among the teeming billions... It's his children that he pities and has proved it, of course, in Christ. Now, verse 14, 14, the second of the two verses I said we'd focus on. I get ready to close with this. But verse 14, I have to tell you that on certain days and in seasons in my life, this is one of the most comforting truths for my own sometimes turbulent emotions. I'm glad that he knows I'm dust. Today's kids would say, boy, is he or she toast. And you know, this can be one's feelings in the realm of the spiritual. We are so addicted to looking at our own performance and using it as a measure of God's working or even accepting us that we forget there could be nothing in us that would move God on our behalf. He already knows we're toast. He already knows we're but dust. That's where, by the way, it all began. Genesis This God of pity is God the creator who took the dust of the ground, formed it, and when he had made an image, he breathed into its nostrils. And it wasn't till then that that thing was anything but a pile of dust. But when he breathed upon it, man became a living soul. And God was his creator father. How much more so in the person of Christ for the redeemed who love to proclaim it 
the way man was created in the Old Testament the first time is exactly, exactly the same way the spiritual man or woman is created in the New Testament. You were toast. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But you, believer, he hath made, what? Alive. How's that happen, says Nicodemus? Well, the same way Adam became a living soul. It took the breath of God. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, so the spirit, the ruach, the breath of God moves upon the lifeless dust of a soul dead in trespasses and sin, and man lives as a child of God. Knowing that God can do such things with dust ought to be encouraging to we who are the pitiful. Well, there is hope. There's always hope because of these truths. You know, there's real hope for my pitiful friend in prison. You pray for him, for his family. There's hope for me. In all of my weaknesses, which I hope most of you will never know about. But there's hope for you. And listen to this, folks. There's even hope this morning for some among God's professing children who would not willingly want to embrace the label of pitiful, who have already been insulted a bit this morning by my preaching, Because you see, of all the most pitiful are those who think they are not. And might welcome other aspects of God's nature and character to be their Lord. But he's the God of pity and only to the pitiful. Like as a father pitieth his children... So the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Are you glad for this truth this morning? Does everything in you want to bless his holy name? Then let's do just that.